0: Good afternoon everyone that is uh, joining, a very warm welcome, just going to play this little bit of background music uh, while we wait. Uh, Once you have logged on though, by all means do um, hit the chat button and just say hi and hello and and make sure that it's all working because that will come in useful as we go through this particular discussion and then um, it'll also come in useful just to get the hang of it because we might run a poll or two or uh, get some Q&A going. Hi there, love the song. I think it's an awesome choice of song. We had a bit of debate actually coming into this. I'm sure all of you don't need the intro to Charles. We'll do it in a bit anyway. But obviously we're talking about a bit of equity markets and this is the perfect song. But first up, let's see if this works. I'm gonna ask Stephen Van Colla, uh to give us a little intro. Stephen, over to you.
1: Uh, morning everyone. And um, welcome to uh, the first in our Inspire series. Um, we, you know, obviously we're in a very difficult, challenging time for everyone. And I've always said to people, you know, don't waste a crisis. So um, really going through the changes that COVID have put on our new normal, as they, they call it, uh, we thought it would be really interesting to speak to different people in different industries, different CEOs, CFOs who are actually running businesses and, um, you know, seeing how they're making changes. One of the most important things I've always said is that, um, you know, when you're in a crisis, the best thing you can do is actually discuss it with um, other people. Don't try and, you know, solve it for yourself. So this INSPIRE series is a part of that, just learning from other people, understanding what they're doing, and maybe being able to ask them a few questions. Um, At uh, EOH, you know, um, and at IOKO, we're really committed to solving for the future exponentially, courageously and together. And I think the together bit is what's really about today. Let's be courageous in the, in, in the change and let's uh, see how we can do it together. We're doing that you know, with our, our clients, our companies, um, within the company, with our colleagues, and the communities by just engaging people in this in- inclusive and innovative culture that uh, has been driving our growth and positive uh, uh, change. The real essence of, of today is uh, you know coming together and getting some ideas out of it, sharing them, and then um, you know, taking them back into our workplaces into our communities so that we can all manage this change that we 're going through as best possible. Uh, today we 've actually um, got someone who I 've known for some time i 'm actually one of his clients. Um, And this is Charles Savage, someone who I've really admired for some time. He uh, was very courageous in going out with a brand new model for um, trading equities. He's the CEO of Easy Equities. And um, they've had a slow burn for some time because really they were ahead of their time and were really looking to change the industry. He'll, He'll talk a bit about that today. And it's really about sticking to... What you believe in, be passionate about it, um, have this massive transformational purpose and then um, emotionally believe it and eventually it will come right and you'll talk a little bit about that now as uh, COVID has forced everyone into you know, digital management of invest- investments and they've seen massive growth over the last three months. So with that, I'd like to just hand over to our speaker, Colin Als of Innovation Catalysts, who I've also worked with for a long time and we've done some really interesting things together. And uh, Colin will lead the questioning uh, of um, Charles and I really hope you enjoy it. It's the, the first one. There's four more that we've lined up in the coming weeks and we'll give you more details of those at the end of the session. Thanks very much and enjoy it.
0: Thank you very much uh, Stephen. I'm just going to change this view. I don't think everyone uh, wants to to see me. I think that's a lot better. So very warm welcome to everyone that's that's dialing in. I really do hope that you get something out of the the next 50 or so minutes that we've got Um, and you certainly should do if I do my job and ask the right questions because Charles has just got so much information about how he's built up his business which I find is so applicable um, across all industries, all types and sizes of organizations. And I deliberately say organizations, it's just not only um, for the profit-based organizations. So I'm just going to do the, the really quick intro just to add to it and start at the end, because we're going to be talking a little bit about easy equities, which Charles has kindly put up in his in his background. Um, I'm not sure what the latest figures are, I'm sure you'll um, correct me, Charles, but Purple Capital must be now what 400 million plus in terms of its valuation but more importantly easy equities 2014 starts as an idea literally on the back of a fag packet as they say and here we are in 2020 and my understanding it is already now the biggest equity broker for the retail market in South Africa and therefore I would assume across Africa is that right
2: yeah that is right firstly thanks for having me on and thanks Stephen um It started on a beach in Mozambique in 2013 in December. Um, And interestingly, it was born out of a couple of questions that I asked of my family, which all centered around why they weren't investing. And I'd been selling investments by then. I'd been selling them for 14 years. And yet none of them, my kids or my wife, had never bought a share in their entire lives. And so the concept of Easy Equity was born out of the desire to get just my family to invest, to understand the barriers and friction points. And then that exploded into realizing that my family looks very similar to lots of other families and that if we eliminate the friction points for them, we would unlock a massive market opportunity. And today, you yeah, are the largest stockbroker uh, potentially in Africa. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm not 100% sure, certainly in South Africa. The closest competitor in South Africa would have 70,000 active retail customers and that'll be Standard Bank. And today we're just about to go past a quarter of a million active customers, um, with over half a million registered accounts, uh, and growing every day.
0: Was that a, kind of a, a linear growth story? Are you one of these organisations that has been quietly working away in the background for the last, you know, was it six, seven years, and suddenly you're an overnight success?
2: <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's it's. You have it, we've had it in fits and bursts. So there's been certain market events that have helped uh, us grow and marketing activities and partnerships that have caused uh, spikes in our growth. But it all got really big on us very quickly in COVID. And that's an unexpected, unplanned event that really pushed us over the edge. I, I said in my results, which were published in uh, for, uh, February, our half-year results at end of February, that I felt that we had reached the tipping point. Uh, there was just a the momentum in our customer base and our growth was such that I felt that we had gone past that point of inflection and we had profitability right in our sights. Um, And, you know, even then in February, we still had no foresight as to what was going to happen in the next couple of months. Um, And it's just been, it's been extraordinary and exponential and we've had to deal with all of the problems, nice problems to do. You have to deal with as a company when it gets big on you quickly.
0: So you're the biggest equity uh, brokerage in Africa now, and um, this is just the first step, I guess, for world domination. What do you think has been the, the kind of primary reasons why people are turning to you guys as opposed to some of the competitors out there, especially some of the, you know, for example, Absa's brokerage, standards brokerage, and so on?
2: There are three key underpinning principles that we built the business on. Um, the first is we placed purpose ahead of profit. Uh, And that's much easier said than done. But when we built the business, uh, and just to demonstrate how seriously we took that, we understood what we were trying to achieve. Our mission was to democratize share ownership. And it's the first business I've ever built where the last thing we did before we launched was worry about the income statement. Every other business in my life I've built by thinking about an idea, conceptualizing it, and then straight to the income statement. How do we make money out of this? But there was, a, there was a deep desire for us to own and drive this democratization and to own this purpose. And when I shared that with my team, it uh, they, they were inspired by it. They joined that purpose very quickly. And then right at the end, we'd already raised money. We'd already started building the platform. In fact, we'd already tested the platform on customers. And right at the end, Ronnie Lubner, who's passed away now, he was my biggest shareholder at the time, He turned to me and said, Charles, you know, at no point you've told us how we're going to make money out of this thing. (laughs) And I said, no. And he said, well, I guess we'll just work it out along the way. And that's exactly what we've done. Um, And it's interesting. You know, when you put purpose ahead of profit, it's not necessarily something that shareholders will adopt or accept uh, very easily. But they, they very quickly come to your cause when they see the effect it has on customers. Um, And so at the start, I would have said that shareholders, if we'd shared enough about how big our ambitions were and how much money that was going to cost them, they might have stopped it. But today, they're as deeply involved in the purpose as anyone else. So that was the first kind of guiding kind of principle. The second one was that we, we placed the culture of our organization and of our customers at the center of our strategy. We needed to ensure that... Our staff were happy and that the environment that they operated in was, uh, was enabling. And the same applied to our customers, which means we needed to eliminate all of the friction points that we found, um, both on our customer journeys, but also on our staff journeys. Because we recognized that the first the early adopters of this platform were our staff and they needed to be happy and engaged and rewarded in the same way that our, our customers did. So, it was rather than focus on the strategy document we focused on that culture the friction points within the, uh, the in within the organization and then the other thing we had to change and underpinned our success was that failure had to be at the center of of um, of everything we do, the acceptance of failure rather than failure um, and that acceptance had to be shared by again by our staff but with our customers because The expectation that we were creating right at the early start was we were going to create this really fast moving agile fintech startup. Um, but along with all of those attributes comes the fact that if you're going to do all those things, you're going to fail because you're moving faster, you're making decisions quicker, we've got a smaller team, we've got less resources, less capital, so you're making compromises all the time, and that meant that we were going to fail, and we wanted, to be, uh, we wanted our customers to understand that when we failed, we would be there, and it's a safe place to fail, and no one would lose any money when we failed. And importantly, if we were going to, co- if we were going to innovate beyond the concept, just the original idea, We needed our staff to be completely comfortable with putting forward innovation that failed um, and that we can create an ecosystem within the group that embraced that failure, rewarded failure, and then learned from it um, and then ensured that we didn't make those failures again. And anyone who's tracked us in social media will understand that that we fail. Our customers, it's an expectation of our customers that our system doesn't work all the time as it's expected to. And, you know, just to put again that into context, in the last 12 months, we've done 52 builds. We do a build every single week. We release new functionality, new services. We fix things. Uh, That happens on a Thursday. So this morning we put one out and it doesn't always go according according to how it was planned. Um, So those are the the three kind of underpins of uh, of what created the success and then staying true to those things constantly. It's not as not, e- not as easy as it's said, but we've stayed true to all of those principles as we've grown and we've got to stay true to them for a long time to come.
0: The, the, I'm, I'm just stunned by that because having worked for a lot of corporates and worked with a lot of corporates, I don't think I've ever come across a leadership team in a, uh, in a corporate that has built themselves up in such a unique way. Uh, I've seen crossovers, but purpose before profit, customers—sorry, staff before customers, failure, and now moving on to actually rewarding sensible failure as well. Did you read a lot of books? Was it a, a sort of a eureka moment on this beach?
2: Look, as you can tell, I'm not, a, I'm not 25. So <laughs> and failure has been part of my career. It's part of my journey. Um, so it's something that I um, I, you know, I wouldn't have chosen as my career path. I would have preferred it if I just got lucky and, and, and made, it, made some money the easy way. But anyone who knows my career knows that uh, GT247.com, which is part of the Purple Group, we, we built that business in 2000. In seven years, we were operating in 44 countries, and we turned a $2 million startup into a 36 million euro uh, company in a seven-year period. Um, and every single business that we opened alongside that uh, made money. And in I became CEO of that group in November 2007. In February 2008, I shut down 99% of all the operations. The only operation that we kept was South Africa. And in that period, and the period that followed, I learned everything about everything. I mean, I learned nothing from 2000 to 2007, except how to spend money. I guess I was good at spending money by then. But in that failure, and a lot of introspection that came out of that failure, and my team who stayed, we unpacked uh, the lessons learned and realized that if we were going to be successful uh, and if people were going to um, trust us again, we needed to be open and transparent about that failure. We needed to learn from it. We needed to create strategies um, to avoid it the next time. Um, and that's so for me, failure, it wasn't it wasn't a journey I chose. It just happened. And then. I chose to stay and deal with that failure, and then rebuild a business and a group out of that failure. And a whole lot of my team trusted me to do that as well. So no, it's not. Uh, it didn't come from books. I mean, I do. There, there are influences that have played a big role in my uh, career. Steve Jobs is probably like for me the probably my biggest influencer in the sense that he didn't invent anything. He just packaged it better than anyone else had ever seen it before and failure was a big part of his own storyline and actually in Easy Equities we realized that we didn't have to invent anything. We didn't, you know, this is, we, in the end we did invent fractional shares but um, for, for South Africans but fundamentally 99% of what we did is we, we just repackaged old business services in an iPhone kind of way uh, and that, you know, that was, Stephen was a, was a, was a big uh, influencer in that fact. The other one which I drew a lot of um, inspiration from was Uber. And I still, I'm an investor in Uber. I'm a shareholder, disgruntled shareholder. Um, I don't know how Uber's going to make money. I really don't. I can't see them getting over that tipping point. But what I love about Uber and what really resonated with us early on was that Uber put a private driver, they democratized access to a private driver. And they were the first company that I ever was aware of that placed the sense, the customer... Uh, at the center of their um, their strategy, and they did it in two ways. The one is that they didn 't market they used their customers as their marketing force, and so they, they out um, branded their con- their competitors by having a better customer experience, which then the customer shared with his friends and family. And I loved that about Uber. And I realized that if we're going to be successful and easy, we weren't going to outmuscle muscle ABSA bank or standard bank or any of the incumbents. They had more money than they, we did. But if our customers were, became our brand, then they would share that experience and they would be, that's much more powerful way to grow a brand. So Uber was a big influencer in that fact. And the other thing that I loved about Uber was that it doesn't matter how much you spend with Uber, you get the same service. So whether you hail a cab for a $10 ride or you hail a cab for a $200 ride, you think about the service delivery is exactly the same. There's no discrimination against the customer based on his value. And when I reflected on that moment and said, Well, how does financial services deal with customers? And we discriminate. Financial services have to be the largest discriminator in the world when it comes to servicing clients. The wealthier you, yeah, you are, the more services there are to protect and retain your wealth. And when we think about financial services, actually our job should be on the other side. Those who are starting to accumulate wealth and start and need to protect it. Those are the ones that need the services. But the bad news for them was there weren't any because you're just not rich enough to afford them. So Uber was a big, uh, big influence and yes, I've read books. Um, Good to great. I loved, I think uh, uh, it's not the big that eat the small. It's the fast Uh, that Eat the Slow, I guess, was a big influencer. So lots of different uh, um, sort of uh, points of inflection that have helped me. I guess more than anything, though, is I'm very experiential. And so I've always surrounded myself with people that are better than me, and I continue to do that. Um, And so I, I, I have mentors and I have people within my team that are just much better at doing this stuff. And so I just make sure that I keep surrounding myself with people that are better than I am.
0: What do you think it is that draws the um, customers to you? You know, why is it that... um, Actually, let's break it up into two questions. Let's just start with that first. But what is it that draws the customers to you? Because you're working in a very homogenous marketplace. It must be quite difficult to distinguish yourself from those major competitors.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, there's no no silver bullet. If there was, it would be so easy for someone to replicate what we've done. So this is not about uh, a single strategy or a... Um, or a single marketing campaign or a single individual, this is, for me, it's a witch's cauldron. Um, And as long as you keep putting in uh, different ingredients, uh, eventually you create some magic. And when you create the magic, then protect the cauldron and make sure that what you put in doesn't take the magic away. Uh, And so for me, it, it was a team effort. It was built on the culture of the organization and the individuals uh, within the organization. And then as we grew, we just kept adding to it. And at some point, and some instances we put stuff in that didn't work and the magic stopped for a while and we had to be responsible and make sure that we took that out. So there's nothing, there's no single thing. I mean, in the result, it looks so different from any other stockbroker. So when you look at it from the outside, you say, oh, man, you know, that easy equity doesn't look like Standard Bank. And so that's why it worked. And I guess that's 50% of the storyline. 50% is that we just look so different from the rest and that we are. I remember when I got my first iPhone, I've actually still got it, how different that felt to my Nokia 3310. I couldn't describe why that was the iPhone, why that was going to be the phone I was going to use for the next two decades. But it felt right. And that, we definitely got that right in our platform. We, we had, our customers had that iPhone kind of experience where they were comparing us to Nokia 3310s. So that, I would say, is 50% of the reason. But the other 50% is the really hard stuff. And this is where I don't think anyone can replicate it easily. In fact, I find it almost – I could never replicate it myself again. And I'm a key architect in this. Is that the people DNA of our business – is where the other 50% of the magic happens. Um, And that's across the organization from, you know, accountants within the business that are being thrown, that get presented with new income statements every six months. So they're constantly having to change the way they report, manage, um, uh, and manage the business through to the tech team at the back office who are delivering 52 builds a year. And that team, are mostly out of banks and financial institutions that used to do maybe two bills a year. And so they had to change the way they operated all the way through to our, our front brand marketing team, who are just an extraordinary collection of talent. None of them came from financial services, not a single one. And some of them are actors and playwrights, others are engineers, um, and so and they are not the the people that you expected to find on a financial services brand team but they are exactly right um as a team uh, so it's 50 percent what we built on the platform that iphone kind of experience but the other 50 percent is in the people dna of the organization and that's the piece that i protect the most because if we lose that people dna we lose our innovation we lose our culture we lose the stuff that i can't replicate because i've been asked a lot of times you know charles if i gave you 150 million which is roughly what it cost us to build this business probably a bit more probably closer to 200 million but if somebody came to me and said Charles I'll give you 200 million replicate easy equities I'd take your money back I can't do, I wouldn't be able to do it again there's things going on that I can't put my finger on um and it's in that people DNA.
0: that's fascinating um Astro Teller he's the CEO of the X company um which was formerly Google X I guess many might know him on the uh, call for the uh autonomous car, the first one that they um, produced and many other crazy inventions, the Google Glasses, which didn't do so well. But he said something you know, very interesting. He said that it takes him 18 months to beat the engineers out of the engineers he employs, which what he meant was exactly where your point three there, he wants them to fail. He wants them to experiment. He wants wastage and duplication. He wants them to, uh, to test things and play with things and virtually everything that they'd learnt in software engineering before going and working for him, he has to unwind. How do you find it employing people coming from a background of banking where they've been doing two releases a year and now they're moving into this 52 one release a week cycle? It was
2: tough. Um, and what we did is we, we changed the HR of our entire group. We, we moved to Agile, um, it's now three years ago, because it was a, it's a framework that obviously came out of the tech space that was gaining popularity. But I was personally looking for a more enabling HR culture within the organization to contain this business. Selfishly, I wanted to create an environment that I never felt I had to leave. And it's funny how corporates, we climb the ladder and then we are asked to leave. Why do we do that? Why do we kick out the most experienced uh, talent? And it's just the corporate culture kicks us off because there are things that we want when we get to the top or we've spent our time that an organization won't what doesn't want to give us. So for example, you know, our dream at Easy Equities is to provide a workspace where people can choose where they wanna work, who they wanna work with, on which projects uh, inspire them. That's not how um uh, that's not how contracts are Written up, employment contracts are written up to say, you know, Colin, you do A, B, C, D, and E, and just do those things well. That's not how ours look. And so we changed the culture of the HR, and then we identified people that were inspired by that kind of culture. And that means that we, you know, when we started our journey on Agile, we had back then, we probably had 60 staff. We're now just over 100. And back then, of the 60 staff, it was less than 50 found that, that, that culture, that organizational culture rewarding for them. And so we had a lot of, we had to find the right people. And that included when we brought in outsourced developers that we ensured that we didn't let the wrong people in. And so, in fact, our HR, head of HR, Beverly, is she's the only accredited HR person in South Africa that does agile, um, uh, it's screening of people to see if they are capable of fitting into an agile environment. So we sent her to New York to get credit to her. That's how seriously we took this stuff. So the whole business has had to change in every respect. This is not just the CEO who talks about it and does it. This is, this is ingrained in our entire organization right at the front door. You don't get to come and play at Easy Equities unless the HR lady says you're fit.
0: We're going to come back to culture, but I just want to um, pick up on a question here. This is from Adam. Thank you for sending this one through. HR's um, I think he's looking for employment. I'm a massive fan of your platform. I love the costs, or maybe he just wants to be an Uber customer. I love the transparency. This platform is changing the way South Africans think about money. You've offered SA, US dollar, and Aussie shares. What are some of the other markets you're looking into?
2: Yeah, thanks for the question. The world.
0: while do you think about that? Just so that everyone knows, if you've yep. got a question, put it through the Q&A if you can, because uh, we'll get to those ones uh, quicker. You can try it in the chat channel, but it often gets busy and we miss them.
2: Cool. Adam, thanks for the question. And, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll eventually open up the world. Um, how are we going to get there is based on customers' vote. So everything that we've built has always been driven by what our customer demand, where it stacks up. So the U.S. wasn't us dreaming about U.S. U.S. was you. Our customers saying, please get U.S. shares. Aussies the same. Um, I think based on the, the, the weight of customer vote, our next destination will be Europe um, and opening up European shares. On Wednesday, we launch a whole new business uh, called Easy Properties that goes live Wednesday next week, which is access to the largest residential property book in South Africa, a residential development property book. And they are properties you're all gonna fall in love with. They're just amazing properties. And this, you know, the reason I'm telling you that is not to market it, but to tell you the story behind it. We did a survey uh, two, about two and a half years ago, uh, where we and we do a big survey every year to our customers. And two and a half years ago, we said to our customers, what assets were missing from our our platform? And we were expecting to find crypto because crypto was the big thing back then. And we were expecting to find other exchanges and 60%, and there were 15,000 respondents. So fairly significant uh, sample set, 60% of them, their number one asset class that was missing access to was residential property. And it was a complete blind spot of ours. I mean, I certainly would never have bought a, built a residential property platform, but the, we then asked those same people why. And the answer was so uh, empowering. is said, look, we live and work in two different places. We spend an hour to two hours a day in the car. And what we want to do is work and live closer together. And we can't afford to make a deposit on, you know, those properties that we want to own. So we've solved that now. We, as of Wednesday, you'll be able to buy into some of the best residential properties and the best residential locations in this country. And we've, we've managed to partner the biggest residential book. So, you know, it's a long answer to a short question. But the bottom line is we are driven by what our customer needs are um, by, and by the weight of our customers, not the weight of their assets. That's another great thing that financial services get so wrong. We, we the old God of financial services, build products for the biggest Customers. We build products for the most customers. It doesn't matter how much you've got one Rand, a hundred Rand, one million Rand, one vote, one customer. So, a very different approach, but based on what we're seeing, definitely uh, European shares looks like it's next. Lots of interest, funny enough, in Asian shares. Uh, the time zone is not as friendly as Europe, so I think, we'll, I think we'll focus on Europe next. And as our Australian business grows, we'll then start to add more and more Asian uh, markets to that business because then we've got the coverage from the Australian office
0: what do you actually see your role as I mean I introduced you as the the CEO Um, that example from Astro Teller he sees himself as the chief cultural officer what's your role
2: innovator enabler um, risk taker I'm not the CEO I mean I it's a nice title and I wear it proudly um, but for me, what I, what's in my DNA that I give to other, pe- other teams in the business is uh, I like to be part of the innovation process, so new product design, new product development, uh, partnership development, and thinking about new ways we can do that. And then the other thing that I bring to teams is the risk profile to do it, um, because in many cases, you're sitting with great ideas, but not the right, not enough risk uh, in the room to be able to make the decision to go ahead and do it. So you know, and then and in through both those things, I see myself as enabling those um, those kind of conversations and ideas. I'm not the CEO, um, and it is we, funny enough we don't have titles. I have to wear a title outside of our company, and that's just because people expect. I mean, if you introduce me as Charles Savage, innovator at Easy Equities, it doesn't feel right uh, just yet. But in time, I think we'll let go of these titles um, and we don't hold on to them very strongly. So yeah, I think if you ask my colleagues, I'd say to you, uh, I'm the risk taker and innovator.
0: Is there a lot of dependency on you, Charles? Maybe it's just down to you. Maybe you're super awesome at this type of stuff. What happens when you step away or hopefully not soon pass away? Does, does equi- equi- easy equities just fold and, and die in the same way people think that... Uh, you know um hathaway might do if um, they lose their leadership team
2: no not at all um the team's much better than it is much stronger than any individuals there are individuals who have got strong influences in that team so if we lost a lot of influences at the same time then they, then, I, then i would be worried and it's not you know it's 100 people and then you know 80 20 rule 20 percent of that 120 people would be key influences in making this organization tick So you don't want to mess with that. You don't want to lose too many of them, but we could lose any one of them at any time. Um, And interestingly, we lost a very key influencer about a year ago and lots of people thought that the business would um, stagnate. Um, And interestingly, she's coming back starts first of July. We can't wait uh, to have her back, but no, there's no dependency on me. Um, But selfishly, I've also created an environment that I never want to leave. I mean, I, Easy equity is, is, it's my baby and I want to see it through and in a kind of selfish way, the real rewards of what we've created for our shareholders and our customers will only be seen 30 years from now. I'm not going to be around in 30 years. Certainly, if I am, I won't, be, <laughs> I won't be a key influencer in the organization anymore, anymore. But I do want to have a right to stay. And I want to see those outcomes. Because what we are creating here is thousands of Warren Buffett's. And the real value, they're going to reflect when they're 60, the average age of our customers is now 32. But when they're 62, they're going to reflect on what created this wealth and what created this outcome. And they're going to go back to easy equity storyline and Um, and so I hope I don't, I hope I never get kicked out. Um, I hope I can always make a contribution and I've certainly created an environment that I can, regardless of where I am and what initiatives I choose to work on.
0: That isn't by chance though, is it? Please tell me it's not by chance. Is there any structure in there or is that, you know, so you've mentioned agile, but there's the way that you've explained it, it feels from the outside, there's a lot more than just agile project management happening here there must be some coordination some structure some method to keep people bound together and and working together effectively can you talk about that a bit
2: you know what agile does is it it's um it creates a playing field and it sort of but the playing field has got lines and their goals but there's nothing else the rule book is unfold in agile and it's probably the most uncomfortable thing about agile is there's no set rule book it just sets a framework, a playing field. So what we did is we took that same analogy and we said, look, people are going to be really uncomfortable with no rules. So let's split the playing field into three zones and say that if you play in a zone, there are a set of outcomes that we're expecting from you. So we've got attack, which we call Grow, uh, and I am the coach of Grow. We have midfield, which is called Engage, and uh, Carl Nolte is the coach in Engage. In, in And uh, I'll talk about, I mean, Grow is obvious, you know, new products, new services, new partnerships, new clients. So that's Grow. Engage is the cultural uh, center of our business. So they measure the happiness of our customers and the happiness of our clients. That's all they do. Um, And they have initiatives and programs to ensure that that happiness factor keeps getting better. And then we have the defense team. Which we call platform, and platform is uh, has got two coaches, uh, our CTO and our CFO, uh, previous CTO and CFO, and platform is all about scalability, stability, throughput, uh, efficiency, and so they have the zones that you play in have got a set of rules or outcomes that you measure that team again, and so it's easy. If we talk about grow, how many goals have we scored? You know, we signed that we signing the Capitech deal as we speak. We've done the Satrix deal. We did the Bidvest deal. um, We've grown into our customer base. And so it's very easy to measure the success and everything that we do in Grow, it must be measurable against those outcomes. Uh, And then the same applies within the zones. And that just makes it easier for staff to decide where they want to play on the field. We allowed people to choose where they wanted to play. And it was fascinating. It ended up with 20% in the front office Grow uh, and then the balance was split. So that balance, 60% was split uh, evenly. Uh, 80% was split evenly, 40-40 between Engage. And so we, we actually, when we, when we let staff choose where they wanted to be, we realized as a growth business, we, had, we didn't have enough people in growth. And we didn't have enough people. And so we had to go out and go, we need more people. And we had to try and encourage some of the other players to say, hey, come on, man, we, you know, we don't have enough players here and grow. And this is why you should join us. And we sort of inspired them to come and join us. But we let people self-select and decide where they wanted to play on the field. And then we worked out whether we had enough and, uh, and people move. You don't have to stay as an attacker uh, all the time, you know, attack is, it's tiring. There are times where you just want to go, you know what? I'm happy. Let me go work in the engaged team for a while. It's much softer stuff and the measurement criteria are a bit more fluffy than scoring goals. So, people do transition but it importantly you can't move without your teammates letting you go it's a it's a negotiated process to move from one team to the other and entry is also you know you don't get to come and join the team unless you've got a contribution to make and the team decides whether you can join so it's it's very much i guess like running a sports team uh, rather than trying to run a corporate and trying to put people in boxes and departments and because uh, the departments span those fields. IT plays across the field. HR plays across the fields. Um, you know, finance, even the finance, or an accountant, when we start a new business, which is in Grow, we need an accountant in there because they've got to do the income statement and work out how we're going to pay suppliers and all that kind of stuff. So it's been a fascinating journey. We're, um, our goal was five years, work towards our dream. So the dream being work from where you want to work, with whom you want to work, on the initiatives you want to work, self, fully self-selected. We're three years in, and COVID accelerated those dreams to the point where I can safely say today, it's done. Our agile work is done. It doesn't mean it's over. The journey will continue, but the work's done. We never have to go back to work in the way that we used to work ever after this. Uh, There's no need. I'm sitting at home running the business, whether I was sitting here or Bolivia or Argentina, or it would make no difference to my team.
0: So Drucker said you can't manage what you can't measure. Now, as a purpose-driven organization, what do you actually put down as measures? How formal? Is it balanced scorecard? Is it KPIs or is it something radically different from what a typical organization might use?
2: The Agile uses OKRs, um, which are just another way of measuring output importantly there's some rules around OKRs that are very different from things like KPIs and balanced scorecard and importantly they don't you can't link reward in the agile world to OKRs to performance so if someone does a really good job it can't be it's not linked to their reward um, directly, so that's the OKRs are just they're there to guide people on the most important initiatives to the group. So what we do is once a year we will um, decide what our initiatives are for the next year, and the way we do this is we we say look, 80% of what we're going to do over the next 12 months is are these 12 initiatives. And those 12 initiatives are brought to the group uh, by all the staff. So everyone comes up with things that they think we should do. And then we go through a democratic process where people vote on those initiatives and we score them on different criteria Uh, and then we agree them. So it's like a budget process, but a very different budget process. And that decides the most important 12 initiatives that we're going to run for the next 12 months. The other 20% of our time, we give our staff the freedom to say, look, nothing ever goes as planned. And so what are you going to do with the other time that you've got? And those, you can do whatever you like. And those initiatives, you don't need uh, our our consent or the organization's consent. And then for each of those initiatives, we measure them. We have uh, key goals associated with them. And we also measure your contribution towards those goals. Um, so if I take a simple one, this Easy properties, which is an 18-month project now, would have been on our put onto our put on two years ago, uh, and it would have had a whole lot of measurement criteria around getting it live within a budget uh, and time frame. So, in building it, and then now as it goes live, it's got a you know a whole lot of goals around number of customers, assets, revenue, and the team that are that built that business and are now going to run it. We Constantly measuring their contribution to it. And the team measures it, not me. The team gets together monthly and they'll say, you know, these are the initiatives we ran this month. These are the things, these are the things that got done. Well done, Steve. Well done, Mike. You guys were the key guys on that. Anyone argue that they, you know, you know that's it, we agree. Or someone says, listen, you've left out Lucy and Lucy needs to be included because she actually did this and that. And we just keep measuring these contributions and making sure that people are making a contribution. And interestingly, so that's the, how we reward. On the other side of that, if you've joined a team and let's say you were on the, the Easy Properties team, it's been an 18 month project. And during that project, some people get fatigued and they sort of their contributions wane. And the team sits there at their meetings going, hey, Charles, you, know, you said you were gonna pitch up. You said you were gonna do this. You said you were gonna do that. You've done none of it. Poor old Justin's had to pick up all of your stuff. Um, we don't think we need, need you anymore. So why don't you just leave the team? And these discussions happen you know, And they are mature. They have to be managed. In the early days of Agile for us, we, had to, we always ensured that HR was in the room, so it didn't become uh, the, ro- the right conversations we had. But now that we've had them a few times, HR is not in the room, unless it's a very difficult discussion, which does happen. But it's now mature, and people are evaluating each other. And it's also the acceptance that it's okay to not be there every month. You know, we've had to build that in. So hey, you know what, Charles had a bad month. He's, um, you know, whatever reasons. These are the influencing factors why I couldn't play this month. And I'm sorry, but I, believe me, I'm back next month and I've sorted that stuff out. And the team will go, cool. We'll, you know. So it's, it's fascinating and it's, um, it's a rewarding and ongoing journey for us. Um, but I tell you, the weight has taken off the leadership team shoulders because the old way of doing these things is we would sit there and evaluate people's contributions uh, measure them and then tell them what their rewards or penalties were. I don't do that anymore ever. I mean, it's just fantastic. I never have to worry about who's getting rewarded. Why not the team's doing it constantly for themselves uh, and it's, the answers aren't mine to make. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it, and it's, I know this probably sounds so, fluffy because you know from the outside it almost doesn't feel like you can create an environment like that and i promise you when we started agile i was like can you actually make this stuff work i mean the the book says the textbook says you can and there were organizations who quoted that they do and i think airbnb is probably the best case study in it they did it uh, in an amazing way where eventually the hr they exited the hr director because she couldn't live in this agile world um but uh, you can, you can create it. It does definitely start at the top um, with the leadership team accepting it because those who've got the most to lose in agile are those who've got the titles. You that,
0: that's are, a wonderful point, isn't it? Yeah. Giving up power to enable others, even though it might increase productivity by many tens, even hundreds of times, is an incredibly difficult journey for most people because you're standing, you're making yourself very naked and very open um, you suddenly start asking yourself, what's my role?
2: Exactly. And it, it was, you could see immediately those who were uncomfortable um, and they just weren't going to make it because they'd got, they would got, they're good and they're effective. And they'd done a lot of good work over a long, a long period of time. And so they had title and they had authority. And then you took all of that away from them and they had nothing because they were no longer relevant, no longer effective in this environment. And so other people around them had been their much shorter journey started to displace them. And, you know, I'm a competitive animal. So I, for me, it's like, whatever, bring it on, let's go. But not everyone's like that. Um, and it's such an enabling force. If you think about a new employee joining a company, and let's just take a big bank like ABSA, how long is it going to take? I don't care how good you are. How long is it going to take before you are in senior management inside ABSA? A long time, a very long time. Well, I don't think anyone wants to commit to something that, uh, where it, it doesn't matter how you perform, you're only going to be recognized in a long, a long time. You know, there are 16-year-old kids who, who play for Liverpool, and yet we don't allow 16-year-old kids to play for, for uh, you know, listed organizations. Why not? Surely there's talent, and regardless of age. And of course there is, and this empowers the talent um, and keeps the old guard playing their a game. Uh, which is, again, a great um, uh, and empowering environment.
0: Do you think this can be a model which large organizations can take on? You've had the advantage of starting it with an idea on a beach, learning off failure on a different product line, having some great people around you who bought into it, some super investors that allow you to proceed even though you didn't know where the profit was going to come from. And now, over the years, incremental success, which has now become exponential success. What about the old guard? Uh, all of the legacy companies that are sitting there that are desperate to try to implement models like this in, in at least part and find it so difficult? Is it possible for them to do it?
2: It definitely is possible, um, but much more difficult than it would be for an organization like ours. Um, and size does matter. And, you know, this is you need... This thing to get momentum and buying across the group, and so if you're trying to do it in pockets in a big organization, it's not going to happen. When we started our journey, interestingly, the the, the when we got accredited as coaches, when we got trained, um, most of the people there were Nedbank, and Nedbank had taken this seriously. And I checked in with um, Nedbank HR about six months ago, and I was like, "How's it going?" And she was like, "You know, it's still happening in small departments, but no real buy-in." And um, so, you know, they they are trying. Um, uh, but I think it's much harder in a big organization. We've, we've worked with other, we've partnered organizations where, that aren't agile. We created a platform called Rise with an old business called NBC that's been around. They're sort of Alexander, they're the black empowerment arm of Alexander Forbes. And when we, we sort of, when we partnered then, there were two ways we could do it. We said, well, we can just transform NBC and it's a big organization, like 3000 staff. Or we can create NBC 2.0, and we looked at it and I said, "Listen, there's no chance. We're not going to. It's just going to. It's doomed to fail. There's just too much change, and not enough time to precipitate that change." So we created Rise, and Rise is uh, essentially NBC 2.0. So I think in some instances you have to start again and create, you know, business 2.0. In others, in other in other instances, I think with the right leadership team and the right buy-in across the organization. You can do it in big organizations and they're great examples of big organizations, I mean, that have done this. Um, uh, ones that come to mind, Nike is probably the most, uh, is the biggest organization I've seen commit to this change uh, in per- being purpose-driven and also agile in their approach um, and have been uh, able to execute it seemingly from the outside very very quickly for a massive organization.
0: Yeah, here's a question from uh, deshni How do you balance the failures, wastage, duplication uh, with the success savings and efficiencies. You don't. Um,
2: because the minute you try and do... Uh, if you try and limit failure, which is is part of balance, then who knows when the next good idea, where it's going to come from. I certainly don't. I mean, I, you know, my track record is probably one out of 20. So, you know, if I wasn't given the luxury to fail 19 times, then, well, I wouldn't have created easy equity. So you don't. But you do ensure that the lessons from failure are made, uh, understood, and well shared. So you, those, those failings must be broadly shared. And then importantly, you don't, you can't fail at the same thing twice. That's You get fired for that kind of stuff. So you know, that's, if, those are the, if you set those rules, you'll find it balances itself because you're not making the same mistakes over and over. And because you're sharing and educating the team and they know, okay, well, we've made that mistake, can't make it again. You end up, it just ends up balancing itself. Um, so that's how we handle it.
0: And then uh, another good question here, this time from Zuko, um, about ecosystems. How do we create an ecosystem where the customers are giving you the key inputs? How do you create an ecosystem expanding on it where um, when you have your failures and the, the points that are going wrong, the customers are forgiving you? How, how do you build that relationship, I guess?
2: Yeah, 100% built on trust. I mean, if I had to say what was the, what's the kind of key ingredient that allows us to do this with our customers and our staff is that they have to, you have to trust each other uh, explicitly. And what I I think financial institutions, you know, trust is a word that we like to use. So Coronation and Alan Gray, it's at the center of their brand marketing. And in fact, it's almost, I I find it um, patriarchal. It's like, you must trust us, but they don't trust you. And it's uh, a key, ch- key, and they don't trust you because they say it in their marketing messages, you're too stupid to manage your own money, so trust us to do a better job with it. That's their kind of line. And what we, we've, I think the future economy, the future of business is built on mutual trust and respect between a customer and the organization and between the organization and its staff. And so you've got to, that, and that license that comes with trust means that you get to do these things, both as customers and as, uh, as staff. So for me, at the centre of it is uh, is being able to build a trusted uh, brand and organisation um, with your staff and with your uh, and with your customers in a way where you it is completely transparent um, and uh, and shared the experiences are shared with your customers and staff and that for me is I think that's probably one of our strongest pieces of DNA and I think our weakest. Our competitors' weakest attack point. I mean, it's just so arrogant of our competitors to think that they can do this better than you. I mean, it's, you know, just think about what those brand messages are saying. You're, You're stupid, we're smarter, you're uneducated, we'll, you know, it's just, and they got away with for a long time. The trust relationship was actually so biased. Now I think it has to be clear. And if you look at the way, you know, the world's moving, there is far greater emphasis placed on mutual respect and trust than it ever has been and that's a great enabler i think for startups uh building a business around that around trust
0: let's talk about capitech i mean you mentioned them earlier i'm not sure what you're allowed to talk about but it's another i think it's another of these strange decisions at least in face value here you are starting to do partnerships with people you're competing with can you can you talk about how this you know or what this capitech thing is and why on earth you're both interested in working with each other
2: I mean, it's strange in the South African context because big institutions in South Africa don't partner little ones, um, and especially financial services. And maybe not true in other industries. I don't have the context to say that. But in certainly financial services, every time you go and speak to Standard Bank or ABSO or Nedbank and tell them what we do, they'll go, but we can also do that. Okay, cool. Go off you go. Do it then. But Capitech is different. Um, And probably why they've been so successful is that Capitech knows what they're good at, and that is retail banking. And they are laser focused on retail banking like no other bank I've ever seen. And that's all they do. They don't do anything else. They just do retail banking. But they're also completely engaged in their customer needs and wants and understanding it from the data. And so they discovered that what their customer needs and wants was easy equities because they saw it in the transactions, they knew it, they, hey, these guys are depositing money into easy equities. And, you know, they obviously did their own customer studies and data points. And so they approached us and said, wouldn't you like to, you know, build easy equities inside Capitec Bank? And we're like, yeah, geez, are you crazy? Like when we started easy equities, we actually wrote down, we said, we're going to, we built the the platform to partner right from the start, because we realized that if you're going to democratize anything, you're not going to do it alone. And then we wrote down, we said, who would be the number one partner in South Africa? and they, it was Capitech, and we thought we'd have to go hunt for them, and they arrived in our door about also 18 months ago. So the deal um, is we're still in the final stages of signing it, but we've announced it, That's how, so you know it's pretty much done. Um, and in July sometime, we an Easy Equities app will go live inside. It's, they call it a widget inside the Capitech banking app, and as a Capitech customer, you'll be able to buy shares right inside the Capitech um, banking experience, and you get a discount, 20% discount on the brokerage as a result of uh, loyalty. Um, and you also, um, it's zero rated for data because the Capitech Act, so you can actually trade shares without having any data costs, which is also a big benefit. So Capitech's a big deal for us. It's like the ultimate, ultimate partner. Uh, and interestingly, Capitech, if you listen to Kerry's stuff more recently, Capitech sees themselves as the future wealth bank. Um, they see themselves democratizing what private banking is today. And at the center of that has to be a service like ours. So it's a perfect marriage for us.
0: One of the most purposeful organizations I've come across in, in South Africa as well. So a, a good marry up there.
2: Yeah, uh, very much so. And so so razor focused on that purpose, which is uh, amazing to see, and also so hands on so entrepreneurial like here he 's in the decision making process for this like he wouldn 't this if it wasn 't for him this wouldn 't have happened and uh, it 's not such a big deal for them it 's a massive deal for us but i didn 't expect to find him in so deeply in the decision making pro- process for something so seemingly small, um, but clearly it 's at the center of their their organization uh, about this purpose and also the fact that they're still highly entrepreneurial and engaged in what's going on in the in the group.
0: Charles that was absolutely fascinating I wish we could just carry on talking for hours and at some point I know you're going to be asked to write a book but make sure you call me when that happens <laughs> please please because I think it's inspiring and incredibly insightful. Stephen over to
1: you. Well thanks everyone thanks Colin. Um, Charles thanks once again for those insights, you certainly put a challenge out there. Definitely some things I want to learn about how to not have to do um, a bonus discussions. Uh, so <laughs> I'll definitely be taking you up on that. Thanks very much, that was really inspiring. Um, thanks to our customers, Nashua, Nampak, multi Multichoice and all the 300 staff who, who dialed in. I hope you'll learn something and can um, uh, apply Agile to your, your teams. Um, well done, you know, Charles, it actually gives me enormous pre- um, pleasure to see that this, this this great idea that you and I talked, you, you talked me through about three years ago, I think uh, has now, you know, started to exponentialize. It was, you know, all these things take time, but uh, you're there and I hope it just goes uh, better and better. And if we can embed you in any of our future platforms, we certainly will. But, uh, you know, thanks very much. To everyone else out there, um, we do have future Aoko inspires series. Next week um, we have Zaf Mohammed, the the CEO of Celsi, and he's talking really about how you know how do you uh, turn that big tanker around. Obviously, uh, something huge that they're going to have to do. But um, making inroads, we've also got Sneha Shah the MD of Refinitive Business Accelerator based in New York City on the 9th of July. And then um, we're looking also um, around the 16th of of July to have John Flismas, the former um, comedian, now businessman and lecturer on. On the 23rd of July, Anton Musgrave from Future World and um, maybe one or two others after that. But please look out for the invites we'd really like to have you. Um, I think these uh, sessions in this uh, crisis we're in are extremely helpful as we all look to manage our businesses in the new normal. Thanks very much everyone and uh, I hope you have a great Thursday.
0: Thanks everyone, thanks Charles, thanks Stephen, thanks to the audience and everyone please stay safe until next time.
2: Thanks everyone, it was a pleasure.